with 75% of the 2018 World Cup Finals now completed, you'd be forgiven for feeling a little upset that we've only got a quarter of the tournament left. I believe we're now allowed to say that this is the business end of the tournament, but in what is one of the most open World Cups in recent memory, it promises to be an entertaining and nerve-wracking knockout stage. We've said Alvida Zane to Germany and Argentina snuck in by the skin of their teeth, while England A qualified, allowing England B to make a World Cup appearance in their final game against Belgium. Cristiano Ronaldo filed Portugal through a tricky group stage with Spain, and somewhat unfancied host nation Russia made it to the last 16 alongside rock-solid Uruguay. Favourites Brazil weren't all too convincing on their way to the knockouts, while fellow South Americans Colombia ensured there'll be no African presence in the last 16 this time around. In this episode, we'll be looking back at the action from the 2018 World Cup group stage alongside Opta scientist Tom Warville. Hi, Matt. And podcast debutant and former professional footballer Gary Mabbott. No, not that one. Another one. Hi, Matt. So welcome to the podcast, Tom and Gary. So far, we've had 48 games in this World Cup final. What's your favourite one so far? I think mine's kind of niche. I really, really enjoyed Croatia um, stuffing Argentina. Um, particularly Willy Caballero's clang of a back pass and, and Ante Rabic deciding to not to get touch and just leather it top corner that was a, a personal highlight yeah that that finish underrated to do that like loop it over the keeper as well when it's one of those chances as well where you sort of think we've got to score that we've got to score that <laughs> yeah. and to not take a touch and volley it straight in confidence kind of yeah compounded the embarrassment it made it made it looking better which yeah. was uh, fantastic Gary any games that stood out for you quite an obvious one for me I'm afraid Portugal Spain yeah. It has to be. The, the entertainment, the Ronaldo factor, it was just, just brilliant to start the tournament off as well. Yeah, and two amazing goals in that game. Well, all of them were pretty handy goals. I mean, Costa's first was pretty good as well, but the Nacho goal, yeah. for me, maybe goal of the tournament so far, the technique involved in that and the sort of swerve. It was almost like, do you remember Cuco Martina? Yeah. I think it was Cuco Martina for mm-hmm. Southampton one year at Boxing Day. Yeah. That sort of outside the foot swerve in, it was lovely. And then Ronaldo, obviously, at the end... We've talked about in that previous pod about how he hit that ball. Normally, we sort of associate the knuckleball style free kick with Ronaldo, but he fancied a, uh, a curler in that one. Last minute, not bad. Yeah, for me, I, I'd say Croatia-Argentina, uh, pretty impressive performance Croatia, and it's always good to see Argentina uh, losing in that way. Uh, obviously, they made up for it against Nigeria. But for me, one of the underrated games so far this tournament was Serbia-Switzerland. I thought it was a really interesting game where both those sides knew... Kind of whoever won that would probably finish behind Brazil, so it meant a lot. And then Shakiri finishing the way he did at the end, fantastic, really. And to come from behind, that was the first game this tournament that saw a comeback win as well. So yeah, nice it's quite quite nice to see Granit Xhaka finally score after shooting from outside the box for his probably two <laughs> hundredth time this season. So well, you buy a ticket, you can win. That. <laughs> So, we'll start this episode by looking at Germany, the reigning champions knocked out in the group stage. Um, in fact, that's the third successive World Cup tournament that the reigning champions have been knocked out of the group stage with Italy in 2010, Spain in 2014, and Germany completing the hat-trick this time around. And it's the fourth time in the last five tournaments they, uh, the reigning champions have done so. Um, Germany, were they unlucky or just didn't work for them this tournament they came into it with a bit of a uh, poor preparation of pundits were saying that they might be one that could surprisingly go out early um, proved to be the case yeah I think that if you look at the, the quality chances that they created they should have scored on, on average nearly six goals um, their expected goals were at 5.7 but they actually scored two and they hit the the woodwork more than any, any other side hit it, hit it three times um, so they, I don't know from the the quality chances they're creating they looked quite good there's also a narrative going along that um, they were quite an old side but actually on average they were the um, 11th youngest side of the competition with an average age of 27.6 years while playing uh, on the field so I think that the combination of fairly young uh, to some extent players and actually playing fairly well they've probably been quite unlucky feeling the pressure I mean the media in Germany is probably as harsh as the media in England and uh they certainly felt after exiting the tournament. But do you, do you think they maybe miss that striker that uh, can put the ball in the back of the net when they most need it from close range? Uh, Miroslav Closer missing this one. So do you feel like they maybe haven't got that player to replace him? I think so. I think so. They Their, their possession stats were second and only below Spain. Their, their successful pass is only second below Spain. So they have this probe in nature just like Spain play, yet they didn't have 
a a finisher, someone in the box to just put it in. These chances they created, they they really should have been going through. Yeah, so chances created. We, we've already mentioned that they they created a lot. They actually had seventy two shots in the group stages, which was fifteen more than any other team. Yet they only scored two goals. Their expected goals total of five point seven, so they underscored that by about four goals. And when you consider Croatia, who scored seven goals, had an expected goals tally of about four point two, then and that they've maybe got the luck of the luck of the draw really there. Um, but kind of desperate scenes from Germany really overall. I think one one thing that's quite interesting that they didn't have any shots that were from fast breaks. Um, and there's always going to be the argument of whether they should have picked Leroy Sané. Now, Sané is totally different to the Timo Werners and Mario Gomez's of the squad and, and Thomas Muller as well, I guess, to some extent, in that he adds that nice bit of pace and, and intricacy on the wing and able to cut inside. And maybe that other option could have meant that they uh, you know, could have been a bit more ruthless or created chances from a different different way. But the issue there is with the counter-attack element is that they didn't really find themselves in a position to be able to counter-attack. They were behind against Mexico in the first half, so they had to attack with Mexico defending quite deep. And in fact, it was Mexico that were really countering on Germany quite a lot in the second half of that game, particularly in the latter stages. Sweden, they found themselves 1-0 down fairly early on, had to claw back. Um, they ended up winning that game, obviously. Um, and then against Korea, again, it was bombardment into the box. I mean, 79 open play crosses in three games. That's 35 more than any other team, 128 touches in the opposition box, 18 more than any other team. So they were getting the ball in the right positions. It just wasn't happening for them in packed defences. And I mean, the stat really that stands out, Germany only led for two minutes and 29 seconds of this World Cup. Um, Not what you expect from the reigning champions. So it worked against them. And you could say that it was was a surprise they were going behind in these games, but when you look at the run of the ball in those games, that probably Mexico deserved to score first, and Sweden as well, really. They had the better chances. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really set up for Germany to to do play in the way they really want, I guess. And it is, I know you can't really put it in the same sort of scenario, but England in the, in the Euros were similar in that they were set up to be a counter-attacking team, but teams would defend so deep against them, it forced... Um, England to almost try and find a creative way through the middle of the pitch and they just didn't have the players to do that. Yeah. Maybe Germany haven't got those players. I mean, we always think Mesut Ozil and players like that are those sort of players, but proved to not be the case where they're getting out wide and crossing in this tournament. Yeah, I think they also, I think luck is a fairly big factor in any tournament football. I don't think we can really forget that. I look past it, but yeah, like you say, I think that maybe... Um, Yogi Love maybe got the tactics wrong at this one and they, they I think they lost the uh, game before the tournament against Austria 2-1. So they weren't coming in on good form. Yeah, but yeah, the way they've, they've played obviously on paper could look all right. But at the end of the day, Germany are out in the groups. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, it's probably up for all back home. Mm. Out in the group, which means it's only the second time that Germany have been eliminated from the first round of a World Cup having last done so in 1938. However, this is the first time it's happened in the first round when there's been a group stage for So England, another team have made it through to the last 16, uh, winning their opening two games at a group stage, which meant their final game against Belgium was kind of a dead rubber, only really deciding who would finish top of that group, which it seemed that nobody really wanted to do. But Belgium, in the end, prevailed 1-0 in that final game. England, very impressive against Panama, but to be expected, really. Um, Scraping a 2-1 win against Tunisia in the opening game, uh, with a last-minute winner from Harry Kane, but they did show that they creating a lot of chances in that opening game. So, I mean, it's a young side on average, 25 years, 342 days on average, this starting lineup. Uh, only two teams have been younger in the group stages, so we've got more to expect from England this tournament? Yeah, I think so. England have been kind of interesting from a, a chance quality point of view again. They've created only the 17th highest quality of chances from open play. Um, which may not seem that good, but they seem more like a, a special teams kind of team. If we take something from American football, um, they created the third highest quality of chances from corners, third highest quality of chances from direct free kicks. They had the joint most penalties in the competition, could have arguably had a couple more as well. Um, and uh, they've created the best quality chance, chances from set plays as well. And I think that uh, a great example of that was that really nice work free kick against Panama. So um, from open play, not spectacular, but from from these set pieces and set play situations, really, really good. Yeah. And there's been talk in this country of uh, they don't really agree with how England 
sort of went into the last game against Belgium by resting a lot of players. I believe there were nine changes to the starting lineup in that game, which is a, a lot. That I think England only had one one more game. That was against Costa Rica in the World Cup, uh, the last World Cup where they made more in the final group game. Um, so Gary, you you used to play professionally uh, for Fulham. Um, if you were one of the England side who were playing those opening two games, would you feel that it would be beneficial for you to play in that third game or do you think it's best to be rested? Um, would you be a bit annoyed that you haven't been able to keep up that momentum almost? I think as a player, you you, you always want to play. So you, you're not sitting there thinking, I hope I don't play, of course. Um, but from a team perspective, and you can see where Gareth Southgate's coming from, if you want to go far in a tournament, if you're looking to actually win a tournament, which is strange to say for an England side, because if you've watched them for the last 20 years, um, we've not got too far. And so you you can see why fans and people are maybe saying that we should keep that momentum and keep keep trying to win every game. But the, the, the tournament, you know, the, the players that are, that are starting the games, they've played for the whole season. You know, a lot of the big players, they've played virtually every Premier League game. So to give them that little bit of a rest to then kick on again in the next round, when when you're totally through, when when it really didn't matter what the result was yesterday, it it totally makes sense to rest them big players. Yeah, and do you th- do you think that even the players that've been left on the bench, there's not really a case about momentum because those players would still be high in confidence. They they wouldn't have played themselves. So obviously, it's completely new eleven, really, wasn't it? Uh, only Pickford and Stone started uh, from the previous game, so it was kind of like a gimme almost for England and yeah, those players. Definitely, they they they'll they'll just they'll be sitting there using it as a as a refreshing break for them. They 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 won't be thinking about that game at all. They'll be totally totally focused on the next thing, the next game, the next training session, and and getting back together. Yeah, and a lot of people have said that they don't feel that making a lot of changes in your final group game is really beneficial. Um, we've looked into that a little bit, and actually, six of the last seven teams to make five or more changes to their starting lineup in the final group game before a last sixteen have actually gone on to win the last sixteen tie. So it maybe shows that freshening up that side a little bit gives other players a, a good chance. Um, it's beneficial in the long run. Uh, Gary, is there anyone who played yesterday you think that may have forced their way into the side or impressed you at all? Um, well, I mean, you have to look at Rose being the natural left footer on that side that. I would have thought and I would have expected him to really try and play himself into that starting lineup in the next game. I'm unsure whether he has or not. Um, yeah. He 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 wasn't fully impressive. He he played well, um, but I think Young has probably still edged it and probably will still be in there. And I think they'll revert to the the same side as that started the game before. Do you do you feel it's easier to defend against a player though that's playing on the left hand side? that's right-footed. So it's kind of a, a little bit predictable that he's going to cut in every time. Um, so you just almost play him onto his left foot. I guess you could say the same for a left-footed a left, um, a left footed player, just play him on the left foot. But it's, it is a bit more predictable, isn't it? It's Definitely. Naturally, you want that left-sided player to be there, um, it, especially the way England set up. England England aren't playing um, the front. There's not a front three where, whereby they're getting wide like in a three-four-three. Three. It's a it's a three-five-two. So then two wing backs are the sole width in the team. Yeah. So being able to get out wide on both sides and get crosses in behind defenses is really important. And it would be, it's the you know it's the reason why you'd be saying Rose should start. Um, the opposite to that is that Young is maybe slightly better defending. Slightly, yeah. slightly attacks the ball more. He's definitely improved um, his defensive side. He, I, like we was talking earlier, he pr- he probably covers um, and tucks round and and gets close to the the, the third centre half um, when the ball's on the other side, and that's maybe a a key a key part of why he may be there, especially for crosses coming from that side. Um, but it's a difficult one. It, I must admit, it's a it's a difficult one because, like I said, they you do want. You want to be able to get down that left side, and you want to be able to attack defenses on that left side with a with a left footed cross yeah. because young checking back every time is going to be quite predictable. And it also so, slows it down a little bit, doesn't it? As well, it having to cut inside and then put a ball in, it kind of slows that attack down. You can't counter attack as well, I guess. We don't want to become sort of lopsided, whereby teams know that all of our crosses are going to come from Trippier. 
because yeah. it, it then would make it easier to defend. Um, we want we want, want them coming from both sides. So it, it, it is a tricky decision, that one, I think. Yeah, and talking about defence, again, we failed to keep a clean sheet in our group stage. That's the first time ever that we failed to keep a clean, a single clean sheet in the first round of a World Cup tournament. Um, so when you consider the quality of the opposition in our, tour- in our group, I mean, we should not have conceded against Panama, really. It was really sloppy. I know the game state, again, we were miles ahead, so it didn't really matter. But Tunisia, again, was a penalty. Okay, that might be a bit unfortunate, but... Yeah, we could have conceded more last night. Yeah, I think the the, the upcoming test against Colombia will be interesting for a few reasons. The the first is probably that it's going to be the first proper test for this starting eleven. Um, mm-hmm. Like you're saying, Tunisia and Panama aren't the the highest quality of opposition, and that's probably why we've got such inflated numbers for them in a few different areas. But um, so that I mean that's one thing. Secondly, I guess overall, um, our prediction model still gives England a, a roughly four percent chance of winning the World Cup, which. Um, it's probably fair. Like we, it's a, it's a fairly interesting draw, such that we get um, we're going to get Colombia and then one of Switzerland or Sweden, um, and it rates our chances at just less than a coin flip, forty eight percent against Colombia, uh, likely to go through. So, so that um, would have a big impact on. So if England were to progress past Colombia, you'd maybe expect their chances to increase, maybe double. I yes, guess. potentially. I think that on paper, and, and I think the model agrees that we are the strongest side than Switzerland and Sweden, but it's just getting past. Colombia in this round of 16 tie, which will be the, the bigger test of the two potentially. And I think the the model is also factoring in the fact that we would probably play Spain in the semi-final if we were to get that far, and Spain are one of the favourites. Yeah, Spain, Spain are, they look pretty strong. Um, our model favours Spain um, quite a lot. I think we've got them down at a 12% chance of winning the World Cup, which is just behind Brazil. Um, so yeah, when we're when we're simulating through the tournament, it's more likely than not if England get through and they're facing Spain, um, Spain probably beat us on average more often than not. So um, yeah, I think four percent is is uh, a fair reflection. It will definitely shoot up. Just got to get past Colombia first. Yeah. The one difference we've actually seen with England in this tournament so far is that. We, I'm going to exclude last night because our style of play was a little bit different. Our whole personnel changed with two nippy forwards that the ball's likely to go a bit longer over the top, and it did so in that game. But in the opening two group games, we displayed a, a kind of different style of play to what we're normally seeing from England at tournaments. There was a lot more of that short passing, quick uh, moving, and that was shown no more than in Harry Kane's hat-trick goal against Panama um, which ended a sequence of 25 passes. That doesn't include Ruben Loftus-Cheek's shot, um, which is actually the most by a World Cup or for a World Cup goal ever since 1966. So, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty impressive from England. A, a really good passing move there. And actually, in this tournament, in the opening two games, only 9.8% of their passes were played long, which is a pass over 30 yards uh, on average. Um, the tournament average around that is 129 um, and if you look at previous tournaments for England, there was a really good discussion before the England-Panama game with Rio Ferdinand where he said that Sven Goran Eriksson actively discouraged him from carrying the ball out the back, rather play it long. In 2002, uh, under Sven, England played 18.5% of their passes long. And in 2006, a bit of a hangover there, 17.7% of their passes long. So that's twice as many this year at the World Cup. So times are changing. I think that we can maybe... I wouldn't say we'd ever outplay Spain or those sort of teams in that style of football. We're showing that we can play football, albeit against so-called lesser nations in those opening two games. But we're not just pumping it long all the time, panicking. Yeah, I think from the opening few games, we kind of see that England look to pass the ball around fairly short and wait for the opening to go long. So I think there's a lot of times where they'll build up at the back between Stones um, and Maguire and Walker and then essentially look to unlock Trippier when he's lost his man and he's found that space over, over the top. So... I think that, yeah, we're probably playing it long, not as often, but when we do, it's more selective. Um, and it's less hit and hope and more, um, yeah, more selective, really. Yes, definitely. I, I, I've i noticed and I felt like there's a real sense of watching Tottenham and Man City when I'm watching England with the way that they're playing, the, the, the way that they're building out from the back. They have got this formation, which I was presuming Gareth Southgate did take it from the Tottenham side. And you can see that there's so many little triangles opening up. They 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 get dribbling in behind, they get close to each other, which also helps when, when it breaks down. So they're so compact as well. And um it's it's really it's really working well. And I feel like we missed a player of 
Jesse Lingard's style, I guess, more than calibre in that final group game. We didn't have some somewhere between the strikers and the midfield who could pick Definitely. that ball up in gaps and maybe make something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should hopefully expect more of the same that we saw in the opening two game, group games against Colombia. Yes, it's good. So Brazil have qualified for the last 16. It's the 10th successive World Cup finals in which they've won the group stage. Wasn't really surprising in the end, but Tom, we make them favourites still to win the World Cup. Yep, so we still have them as favourites, um, giving them a 16% chance of winning the World Cup overall, um, which, yeah, I mean, they do look really strong. They've maybe not got out of third gear quite yet. Um, and having said that, I mean, you just mentioned that they got out of the group fairly easily. This is a group with Serbia, Switzerland and Costa Rica, which I don't think on paper is that easy a group. Now, we probably always thought they would have qualified, but they probably had a couple of ch- tests along the way. Yeah, saying that, they, they kind of, or I wouldn't say got lucky, but they drew against Switzerland in their opening game. They weren't that convincing. They probably should have snuck a victory in the end. They had a few good chances at the end. Costa Rica, it wasn't until the, what, the 90th, end of the 80th yeah, or yeah. 89th or 90th minute that they took the lead. Could have easily drawn that game. Going into a tricky match with Serbia, the final game, um, I mean, could have been different, really. So, I... Yeah, I mean, we say that, but looking at their the numbers for their their uh, the group stage, they had the fourth best expected goals, so they were creating good chances. Third best expected goals against, so weren't giving many chances, and they only faced four shots on target in that in the three games. So we we sort of associate Brazil with great attacking flair and uh, sort of scoring a lot of goals, but this team seems to be quite solid defensively as well. Yeah, they look fairly resolute and, and it's always nice to have a goalkeeper of, of Allison's quality in goal. He's just come off a, a great season with Roma um, between the sticks and it's probably down partly to the defence just squeezing when they come to have shots. Um, a great example of that, I guess, is Alexander Mitrovic having that. It's probably a foul. It's almost definitely a foul. But getting sandwiched between um, a couple of Brazilian defenders and that's just the, the amount of pressure that they seem to be putting on the opposition when they're creating chances. Yes, yeah, it's really interesting with Brazil because... Like so, like you were saying, we we often associate them with this expansive style of play, and they have brilliant attacking players. But they seem very happy to sit in and very happy to to contain teams when they need to. They fall into this really balanced formation, which is why they've not given many shots away. Um, and it it can be really explosive because they can counter other teams, and and that's very dangerous, especially going into the the knockout rounds. Do you think that they might be a bit more? defensively sound, it's going to sound strange to say this, but because they haven't got Danny Alves in the team, who is so attacking as a fullback alongside Marcelo, that they've only almost like not as attacking on that right-hand side, so it's a, it's enabled them to defend a bit better. I don't, I don't know. They're quite experienced, centrally defensive as well. Um, they have Fernandinho protecting that back four at times. Uh, yeah, Casemiro as well, who's, who's sort of done a similar job for Real Madrid. And like we say with England, where you've got the, the Man City and Tottenham template, um, they kind of take a similar thing with, with Real Madrid. Casemiro can just sit in, um, doesn't really have any uh, need to progress the ball. He's not really the ball progressor in that side. You have Neymar who can run it up the field. Coutinho, I think, is probably one of the, the unsung players of this tournament so yeah. far. has played really well. And they haven't even really played Firmino yet, who has a great domestic season this year. And they're, they're a much more rounded side than they were at the last World Cup when they were heavily reliant on Neymar. And we saw that when he got injured for the semi-final. I can't see that happening this time around. Even if Neymar got injured, I'd say they've still got enough threat going forward. They yeah. are. They're um, so strong. Um, I've, I've noticed Neymar in games. He goes inside and he's playing, playing in the middle quite often. And in some ways, he doesn't need to do that. He could stay out wide and allow other players to find more space because they have they can hurt teams from everywhere. It doesn't have to be through Neymar, and um, they they look really impressive. I think. Yeah, Neymar was targeted quite heavily in the opening game. Suffered ten fouls in that match against Switzerland, um, which is the most by a player since 1998 when Alan Shearer suffered eleven against Tunisia. He's had the most shots overall in the group stage with sixteen. He's had the most shots on target overall with eight. Um, not the highest quality of chances overall. Um, XG was only 1.9, so you'd expect him to score around two goals with those chances. Are, is there an argument to say that, this is just testing the water here a little bit, but is he a bit of a, just a show pony really in that he's not, the end product's maybe not there quite. I mean, we look we looked at his career when he was at Barcelona in La Liga and he underperformed his XG by quite a bit. He like, underperformed by five goals. 
He's turned that around again at PSG. Uh, Five goals over how many seasons? Uh, that's over three seasons. Okay. So it's not yeah a lot, but you're looking at players like Messi, Kane, yeah. who are overperforming that by quite a bit. So Neymar, you always sense that he's trying to do something for the cameras a little bit more than other players, and yeah. could he become undone, or could could that really come become costly for Brazil? Maybe. I think it definitely comes back to the point with expected goals, where it's definitely a measure of how good a player is at getting chance in the first place. And, and with Neymar, he's really, really excellent at just like beating his man. Um, he does that, that great thing where he kind of gets the ball, stands still, and then within a flash, he's just gone and he moves and he's created an angle or he's, or he's moved the ball on. Um, maybe his finishing isn't as good as it should be, but hopefully within this team, he, they don't have to rely on him as much as, say, Brazil, uh, sorry, Portugal have to do with Ronaldo or, I don't know, Poland have to do with Lewandowski. They have goal scorers all over the pitch. England have to do with Harry Kane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, and also I think that it's you know it's not great that he's getting fouled. Valen Barami did a great job on him in the Switzerland game, and we can see from where Barami's defensive actions are in that game, they were kind of all where um, Neymar was getting his touches. But set pieces for Brazil are always going to be a threat as well. Um, just because Neymar gets fouled in around the box, you've got Coutinho set over that free kick. That's still not uh, not the best thing to have if you're you know playing against. Playing against Brazil. Yeah, and also their opening goal against Serbia came from a corner. Thiago Silva showing you the threat at set pieces there as well. So, yeah, they've got, they've got more strings to their bow than just Neymar this time. So, looking at two more South American teams um, who have kind of had differing fortunes in the group stages, albeit both qualify for the last 16. Argentina first up. Um, they drew their opening game against Iceland 1 all despite Messi having more shots than anyone ever in the history of football, had a, couldn't score, and he missed a penalty in that game. Second game, it was worse, losing to Croatia in dramatic style. But they turned it around that final game. Um, a few team changes. It seemed like Messi was managing the team as well as playing, um, and they beat Nigeria 2-1 thanks to that late Rojo goal. Um Second oldest team in the tournament, and uh, that was actually against Nigeria, was the, the oldest side ever starting 11 in a World Cup game. How old were they? They were 30 years, one, eight, nine days old. So, yeah, a uh, pretty old side. And then, could we say they're still reliant on Lionel Messi? Yeah, I think it's it's crazy to think that this is a side that has uh, Angel Di Maria, Paolo Dybala, Gonzalo Higuain, uh, Sergio Aguero, <laughs> and yet they're still very reliant on Lionel Messi to, to create and score. The fact that he was coming from from so deep um, against Iceland, against Croatia as well, to some extent, to get the ball centrally and drive it upfield, they were really missing that passer that could really get the ball into him in the final third. Um, maybe we saw that a bit differently. Ever Benega obviously paid a, a beautiful pass to him in the final game against uh, Nigeria um, from to score. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's that's a setup that they go for, but whether Benega has the legs to do that for a full 90 minutes is a different question. Yeah, I think, like, an, an issue for Argentina, especially against Croatia, is they just the, the ball wasn't getting to their most dangerous players. There was a, a stat that we produced up to Joe at half-time in that Croatia game, and Sergio Aguero hadn't touched the ball for the final 21 minutes of that first half as a striker. And, and Messi had the second fewest touches in that first half. And I, I wouldn't even say Croatia stifled Argentina. It's just the ball was not able to get to those players. They weren't in dangerous positions. I think on average in this World Cup, Messi's touched the ball 30 to 35 times fewer than he does at Barcelona in games. So he's not having as much impact as he would at club level. Is that because, or it's, it's fairly obvious to me, it's because he hasn't got players around him like he has at Barcelona that have the quality to make sure that everything isn't on his shoulders? Yeah, this, I guess the San Paoli system is is very odd. And someone who's usually seen as quite tactically astute to this tournament doesn't that really seem... That sounds like a band, the <laughs> San Paoli system. Oh, trademarking <laughs> that. Um, yeah, yeah, when you see that when he, he sort of put five strikers on in one game at some point, and, and if you don't have any sort of shape to get the ball too messy or move it you know, through the phases to get it to him, it's really hard for him to have an impact. Yeah, um, it was like playing FIFA and you were kind of like one down... With like ten minutes yeah, of desperation of just like yeah, just ultra attacking five strikers on, and uh, yeah. yeah, it is strange. I I actually expected Sam Pauli to 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 get across his system a lot more than he has. Um, when he was at Chile, he, he had this pressing, free up front style, and I I expected him to bring that to Argentina. And it's he he seems to still not know what his best team is, what his best tactics are. He's he played three different formations in the three games. 
and whether they can go on and get that right and, and keep one of them that works is, is going to be interesting because they certainly have the players to do it. Yeah, I, I, I just, I feel personally, this is the worst Argentina team I've seen at World Cup final in many years. Mascherano, real weakness there in, in defensive central midfield. He's, he is not the player he once was. He was a great player, but legs are maybe going a little bit, not yeah. protecting the back four. Um, they are definitely there to be got at, and I worry for them a little bit against France and their young side and attacking quick t- team. And we could, it could be quite embarrassing for them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to obviously be made to eat my words there, but yeah, I, I worry for them a lot in that game against France. They do need that. They do need that protection. Uh, Mascherano maybe not as good as he once was, but I think there's still something there with Argentina. I think with Di Maria, Dybala must be looking and watching and thinking, what have I got to do to get a game? Because He's a fantastic player and I know he's plays in a similar place to Messi, so maybe they step on each other's toes. I'm not too sure, but there, there's got to be some way of getting a, a balanced team there. Um, I really think that... But that would surely help Messi. Having a player like that alongside him, the teams of the focus isn't so much on Messi. If, if, say Messi's marked out the game with two players or three players, like Iceland did, then a player like is going to have space and... It's a no-brainer for me. And we we always said in the second game, didn't we, where Di Maria didn't play. It was like everything was on Messi. They had no creative outlet. And I know Di Maria wasn't fantastic in the third game, but it's kind of that option was there. And it it showed. I mean, Argentina had better chances in that that game against Nigeria, albeit game state again where they had to chase their game. Yeah. Um, But I think the the game state point is interesting. I also think that Argentina have averaged the third highest amount of possession, so 67.8%, um, just behind Spain and Germany. Uh, and again, it comes back to, like, do they have too much of the ball such that they can't tr- create these these transition opportunities to hit teams quickly on the break? If you look at any of any of Messi's goals um, in the last year, you know, a, a large portion of those will be hitting teams on the break, attacking quickly, and they just can't do that because there's no space. Teams um, sit very deep in either a lower or a mid block against them, and it's really hard to to actually get at them for Argentina. So moving on, uh, we're going to look at another South American team who did really impress in the group stage, albeit you could say they probably have one of the weaker groups. Uh, Uruguay, uh, they're the first side to win all three group games without conceding a single goal since Argentina in 1998. They scored seven, conceding none. Um, A real threat from set pieces as well. Yep, so uh, they were creating the second uh, highest quality chances from corners. That's going to happen when you've got Diego Godin and Jose Jimenez. Um, and we kind of spoke about in the in the preview podcast, you know, up front you've got um, Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez, two world-class strikers. At the back, you've got those two great centre-backs. And they've kind of mixed it up in midfield. They've played uh, Ben Kerr of, of Juventus and Lucas He's Torreira really as well. He's impressive, Ben yeah. We really like him. Yeah. And I think maybe now Jimenez is out injured potentially. So Jimenez had the second most interceptions at 11. So someone who's able to sort of read the game well, um, he's fairly confident on the ball and good in the air, they're probably going to miss him. Not only that, Godin and Jimenez obviously both play for Atletico. Um, that partnership has been forged at club level as well as national team level. So that's a big blow if he was to spend some time out injured that bringing someone who, who Godin maybe isn't as used to playing alongside. Yeah. And it showed in the group stages, I mean... They had the best defence. Uh, we've already said they didn't concede a goal, but they just don't give chances to teams. Average ex- uh, So the XG of their three games in total over the group stage was 0.83, which is the lowest of any team. And they only conceded six shots on target. Um, again, albeit they had a weak Saudi Arabia team in their, uh, in their group. They had a, a, a Mohamed Salah. Less. Oh, sorry, yeah, I can't even say less, but yeah, he was, he was playing, but it wasn't the same Salah, was it? Yeah. Um, and then a host nation, Russia, who had already qualified. And down to 10 men as well. Yeah. Um, so they face Portugal in the next round. Ronaldo is definitely going to be having a few shots. Um, so I think that might change. But, I mean, they look really solid. They look really good. And maybe real good chance here of getting to the semifinals and being underdogs in this in this tournament. I think we've always said that about Uruguay in the last few years. But not only are they really strong at the back, um, obviously they've got Suarez and Cavani up top. They um, touching on the the centre backs. They remind me a little bit of Atletico. The the style of play. They they play a four four two most of the time. They're very dogged. They're very resilient, and they can play. They're just not an expansive team. So maybe there's, there's a lot of people maybe 
don't think they're very easy on the eye and um, think they may play poor football, but that they, can play they, to their advantage. They re it really can, and they're a tough team to play. You, you don't want to be playing them. You don't want to be getting them in the next round because they're really tough and they could go far. Yeah, I think like teams may underestimate Uruguay, um, but they they are a good team. They have a few stars as well, and obviously the the front line Cavani and, and Suarez are always going to be able to get goals. Um, both of those were in the top 10 scoring players in the top five European leagues last season in all comps. Um, so we know what they could do. Um, so yeah, Portugal, be wary. So we say Uruguay, they face Portugal in the last 16. Tom, you've got some numbers on the Portuguese. Yeah, so I think Portugal, we, we spoke about them a bit earlier, where they've got, um, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo is the focal point of that attack. He's taken 15 shots in this tournament, but they're, they're so heavily reliant on, uh, on Ronaldo. So he's taken 15. The next highest is Quaresma with four. They're probably all outside of his boot as well. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you've only had a couple for the rest of the players in the squad. So... Um, you know, if teams are able to do a job on Ronaldo or if he, you know, he really takes it on himself to score, do we see that reflected in him taking wild shots from range like he has done um, a bit earlier in the tournament? So so that's interesting. Um, they've only used 16 players as well uh, and only Australia have tried fewer. So there's an argument whether that's just them keeping the same tried and tested system. Um, they're probably going to have some fresher legs if they need it in the squad. But overall, we give them a 5% chance of winning the tournament overall. So that's them. And then Croatia as well. Um, they're the 11th oldest side, so an average age of, of 28.7. Um, you could give the argument that they're coming to the end of this golden era. Um, you know, Modric, Rakitic, Mandzukic, all slowly coming to the, the sort of peak end of their playing careers. Um, but they've been like really, really you know, great finishing. We spoke about Rebic earlier, his, his great finish, and uh, Modric as well has got that great goal against Argentina. So they've scored seven goals from about three expected goals. So they've scored four more roughly than expected. Um, you know, you can't go far, you can't go deep in tournaments without being a bit lucky, but maybe they've been riding their luck so much that it might come home to, to roost in the next round. Croatia, as it pans out in the bracket, are likely to play Spain in the quarterfinals, I believe which Spain should be worried a little bit, I think, about Croatia. They, they seem to have a mix of technical ability, a very good side with the ball at their feet, but they're also quite dogged and physical. There's that side of them that's a bit nasty. Yeah. Um, they have that threat up top with Mandzukic. He's getting older now, but still an aerial presence. And like they're another team, I think, you really can't rule them out to actually surprise a few people and get to a semi-final room. To a final, really. I, I'd be worried as an England fan about playing Croatia. Um, definitely. I think they're a really good side. They're shown against Argentina, albeit a poor Argentina side, that they can do it against so-called bigger nations. Um, so, yeah, I, I would worry. Going back to Portugal, um, we talked about Karezma, obviously, a threat. Um, again, quite quite an old player. He's sort of got to his... Uh, is this going to be his final tournament? And you could maybe say the same about Ronaldo, but... You He's one of those guys that will end up playing till he's 50. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Portugal were lucky in the end against Iran. Iran could have easily scored after they had that dodgy penalty. They had a really good chance. Um, so they could maybe count themselves a little bit lucky to be, to be in the last 16. Yeah, I think aside from that amazing game and amazing performance by Ronaldo in the first game against Spain, they've definitely stumbled through and it's it's shown already again in them other two games that unless Ronaldo scores a couple of goals every game, they are gonna they're gonna really struggle to go through because the, the rest of the side is so heavily reliant on them and they're they're actually playing quite poor football um, outside of Ronaldo. Mm. And so yeah, if if teams can nullify Ronaldo in some way, they, you'd think that Portugal would um, struggle. We yeah. say that, but then at the, at the Euros, they managed exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. They did. So maybe it's it's a it's a winning, albeit boring, formula for a, yeah. for a champion. Cool. You don't want to peak too early. Maybe Portugal are not peaking too early. We can't have a podcast recapping the group stage of the 2018 World Cup finals without talking about VAR. Obviously, this has been the main talking point of the group stages. It. I'm going to go as far to say this is completely going to change how football is played and how it's consumed by people, really. I mean, we've seen 24 penalties given already in this World Cup, which is the most ever in a complete World Cup. Um, last group stage in 2014 and in 2010, there were 10 penalties awarded. We've doubled that and more. Um, 
I mean, it, it's what what can we say about VAR really? I mean, is, do you think it's beneficial? Do you think it's something that we we now got to get used to really? Yeah, it's it's obviously controversial with um, with fans and people watching in terms of are the right decisions still being made even with using VAR. Sorry, I say VAR, I don't say VAR. Yeah, I, I'd be, I struggle. I'm, I think I'm VAR as well, really. <laughs> if I say VAR, I don't mean to. I think one brilliant thing about VAR is that we should no longer ever get a goal ruled out for offside, which was onside or, or vice versa. As we saw with Korea against yep. Japan, so uh, with, against Germany, with, sorry. With linesmen letting the play go to see how it, develops whether there be a goal or no goal and and then putting their flag up or being told that it was offside i think is a brilliant move because for them black or white decisions it's totally changing the game and no one's gonna no team is going to be hard done by or off of the back of a, a bad decision that that wasn't the case um which is a really brilliant part of var i must say but talking about black and white decisions penalties are still of a referee's opinion they're Definitely. not black and white decisions really that we saw this with the handball for uh, uh portugal against iran quite comically given as a penalty it wasn't a penalty and i think we saw the same sort of incident when argentina i think it was rojo handballed um as it was going through to agalo against nigeria that wasn't given correctly so even the referees watching it back he's still looking at that thing it's a penalty and i think in that Argentine nigeria game as well the nigeria player threw himself to the ground a little bit with mascherano so we're never going to get a complete system it it enables him to see an incident again and make a decision on it but yeah i mean it's, it's very hard with non-black and white decisions yeah i think maybe we're just we're going to get more in the short term it's always going to happen really um so we've actually got the the fewest fouls per game um of any tournament since 66 why do you think that is uh, I, th- I think it's interesting. I don't know if it's it's more um, the referees letting the game go in the field potentially, but it it obviously is. Um, well, potentially these are more high impact fouls. These are fouls that if they're caught in the box, you know, it's going to be a penalty. Um, so maybe teams are a little bit more wary of that. Um, but also, yeah, they 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 know they're being watched and they know that it could be called back at any time. So they're not willing to take risks. Uh, whereas, like previous tournaments, you maybe a few like. Yeah, pushes and I said, we haven't really but... seen those those moments. Obviously, infamous Luis Suarez bite. We haven't seen anything like off the ball which could invite retrospective action as of yet. Because like they, you know, it's this area. We saw the Royal Rumble um, when Panama defended against England at corners. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Royal <laughs> Rumble. <laughs> yeah, there was obviously the the rugby tackle on Harry Kane. There was a couple of those against Tunisia as well. I think. Yeah. I think since then, um, you know, this is very early stages for for VAR on on the world stage. And it's going to take a bit of ironing out to get the tweaks and and to actually get it properly working. And you know these numbers will probably settle down at some point. But um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a, a good addition. One thing that's of interest to me is that um, average injury time is, is way up. Um, so it's the highest of any competition since '66. Um, a minute and a half about that, aren't we? Longer yeah. than. So in 2014, it was, it was five minutes and 40 seconds added on on average. Um, uh, but this year is seven minutes and sixteen, and of course, from that we have we have a longer ninety-minute period in which we've seen twenty goals, which is the most of any any World Cup as well. So, yeah. at this uh, stage in the group stage in twenty fourteen, we had eight ninetieth-minute or injury time goals, so double and more again. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing more drama, if anything, aren't we? And the whole, the whole dramatic thing of referees walking up to the screen, kind of like it's Americanized it a little bit, and it's. I hate to say it, but I've enjoyed it. I enjoy that sort of like build up, like oh, will he, won't he? Will he? And then yeah. you watch the replays back yourself. Like, no more than that Korea Germany game, where you saw for yourself Cruz played that ball, and you're like, oh my god, he's going to give it. He's going to give yeah. this goal, it, and it was that drama, sort of dramatic. It's thing. Definitely in and raise the entertainment factor for sure. If you're sitting there as a neutral and you don't mind which way the decision goes, it's it's really interesting to watch. That on the other hand when we get into these knockout stages and you're rooting for a team and something happens that you totally think is not the right decision, um, that's when we're going to see some real uproar with, with VAR, I think. Because right. they're still not getting all of the decisions right. But the, the confusing matter as well, we talked about Harry Kane against Tunisia. We, I think we've, we talked over this in the last podcast. Is like we, We're told that VAR is used throughout the game and that at any point they can call the referee and say, you might want to look at that. Why was that not used when Harry Kane was basically wrestled to the floor twice. So I know they've maybe sort of improved that aspect after that game. I think FIFA met up about it. Mm. But 
I think part of it is like you don't want to undermine the guy in the middle on the pitch. Um, you don't want to. Been done for years, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. You, you you kind of want to aid him. You don't really want to direct him, and it's probably there's some extent of I don't know if embarrassment's the right word, but if if he's got a decision so wrong or so blatant that he's missed, um, you know, it's it's potentially reputation damaging. They don't want to to correct such a bad call. So yeah, maybe it's better to do behind closed doors. Uh, on the educational side versus in front of millions of people watching worldwide. They should put the referee in a curtained booth like those passport photo places where yeah. no one can see what he's doing at the time as well. I'd, I'd like to hear the conversation like we do in rugby because I'm really interested to know what the VAR guys in the booth are saying to the ref. Are they saying you should do this or are they saying maybe you should look at this? Yeah. Because there's, there's two different things there. They, they can see certain things that, again, we come back to definite, 100% clear and obvious fouls or, or decisions. And they should should be able to say to him, it is. So so he doesn't even need to come and look. He should be able to just give it. Like a, a, a corner that he's given a goal kick and they've clearly seen a touch from the player, he should be able to rectify that instantly. And that would be a, a real development and a real positive um, step to take with this VAR, I think. I think they're just having casual conversation. When they're, that's <laughs> they've got they're Love Island on like the yeah. sixth screen and they're just catching <laughs> You see Megan last night, mate. Yeah, that's what the, the VAR guy's doing in his full kit in the room. Um, Do you guys think that it slowed down the game as much as you thought it would have? No, I think it's been used quite well in this World Cup. We, we, were, we saw some incidents in the FA Cup last year where it really wasn't used well, but I think that's mainly because the referees just weren't used to it. They'd never used yeah. it before and they weren't trained up maybe properly on it. Um, so it's been used pretty well. The only game where it's been slowed down a bit too much was around Portugal, I think, wasn't it? I think it's it's definitely great for diving because I don't think we've seen a yellow for diving in a tournament. Yeah, we had the first one. Did um, we have one yesterday? I believe it was. I can't remember who it was, but we did a we did do a fact on it, and it's yeah, in okay. the top of my head. So okay. I think that's a real real good thing. The players know they can't get away with that. On the other side of it, I I don't have numbers to back this up but it does feel like players are staying down for longer in in um skirmishes and and hope, hoping to get fouls or maybe more action yeah. because they know it's being looked at i think players are trying to give more time for it to be looked at yeah. and i think that's maybe the slowing down part I not the var the players are doing that alongside that Descent by players crowding around the referee. Yeah. We saw it I think again that's... in Aran v Portugal. It sounds like the only game I watched. <laughs> Aran v Portugal, we've seen, I think FIFA said that you'll get a booking if you do the old TV screen thing. Yeah, but yeah. Players are doing that all the time and they're yeah. crowding around the ref going, Are you not going to look at that? Are you not going to look at it? So I wonder referees... if it's because they're not doing like regulation size rectangles when they're trying to draw it out. Some of, yeah. the, some of the ones the players have drawn are. It's Sub, very difficult. Substandard. If you imagine being a player and you, you, you feel or doing a totally hard rectangle. done by it or you, you feel like <laughs> a decision is totally not the right one, you're going to want to try and, yeah, and say that to the ref in, in the best way possible. I think we saw Mikel did it very nicely in um, in the Nigeria game. He, he was telling his players to calm down and he was just calmly saying to the ref, yeah, you have a look yeah. without without being um, in his face sort of thing. Well, it was that Iran-Portugal game as well. I think we must have watched it together about seven <laughs> times. But it, the, I think the, the number three for Iran was like properly in the ref's face. Um, was Hyping sort of like up the crowd to, as well. Yeah, yeah, he was no, and I mean, maybe this is again something that they look to review, but that is something which you really want to stamp out. Um, you know, keep the players under control, not crowding the ref. I think in the Premier League, you do get yellow cards if, if you know, it's only the captains allowed to speak to the referee, I think. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, nil-nils. We only saw one in the group stage. That was France-Denmark. It was the longest we've gone into a tournament without seeing a nil-nil up until that point. We're seeing games are much tighter. There's not really any thrashings. There's not many draws either, though. There's, there's, It's almost as if those games that were previously being drawn were games where referees were unwilling to make that decision that might mean a team loses or wins in sort of late on in games but now he has the ability to look back at those decisions they're not they're sort of those tight games are being decided by that that I th- decision I think also we've got like every single team in the tournament deserves to be there every team scored um, 
two goals or more. So we we do have like first a, time ever. Yeah, World first time history, ever. Yeah. So we have like an underlying quality of like good sides, and I think that there's probably been a squeeze where the best sides in this tournament aren't as good as they previously have been. Yeah, and definitely. and the lesser quality sides are actually playing quite well. So from that, you've got more tighter contests, and and you know you don't have nil nils, um, but you know you are getting a lot more goals. Interestingly enough, um, there's there's fewer shots per game going back. Um, from any any tournament since '66, it's incredible. In 1966, there were 38 shots a game, and in, in so this is just group stage games. Just yeah. group stage games, yeah. Sorry, and um, in 2018, there were 24.4 shots per game. But the, the, there's also the highest proportion of those shots coming from inside the box. So maybe teams are getting wise to to the notion of you know chance quality and lesser being taking pot shots and range. 58% is is a lot of shots from inside the box. So. Um, so we've got fewer shots per game than Italia 90, which was 25.4 in the group stages. This is 24.4. Italia 90, notoriously one of the most boring tournaments, uh, despite England actually doing quite well. So maybe England might get to the semi-final. Make it boring, England do all right, it seems. So we're seeing a lot of goals as well from set pieces. Um, albeit, yeah, quite a lot of those are from penalties. But yeah. we're seeing... So England obviously showed their quality from set pieces. Uruguay as well. 43% of all goals at this World Cup have been scored from set pieces. When you're looking at the average uh, in modern football, I, I should say, it's about one in three. So there's, it's definitely above normal. Um, VAR obviously having an impact there. Yeah, I think that it's quite funny Like to start the tournament. I think after the first couple of match days, we were at 70% of goals were from set pieces. And there's obviously a lot of narrative around is football now a set piece game, blah, blah, blah. That was... It seems just a, a a fact of it being from a very small sample. You know, teams and over a, a large number of games, they actually ironed out and, and averaged out a bit more. But yeah, maybe I think the teams are getting smarter. They do see the value in set pieces. Um, we've also seen obviously a couple of of really really good quality ones as well. Tony Cruz and Alexander Kolarov being two highlights um, of great set piece goals. So yeah, again, maybe we review this after the World Cup's finished and, and we're actually back to a third um, as well. So we've reviewed the 2018 World Cup group stages for you there. Um, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes. We're also on SoundCloud. Give us feedback via Twitter. We're on at OptaJoe. It's the same for Facebook and Instagram. And we should be with you next week ahead of the quarterfinals looking at the final eight teams, reviewing the last 16 ties and telling you everything you need to know. So thank you for listening. Thanks to Gary. Thanks, guys. And Tom for being on the pod this week. Cheers, Matt. And I'm Matt Furness, and I was your host. <laughs>